Welcome, everyone. So are you tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Well, you've come to the right place. Here, we cut through the world of surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths. Here, we dive into the dark waters where strange creatures move. Here, we're free to be that foolish knight who lunges at windmills and who lights up the world with his magical vision. It's all too much, says George Harrison. That's true, but all the more reason to jump into it and intoxicate yourself with life's infinite profusion. After all, you don't discover new lands by sticking close to the shore, do you? This is the wisdom of, and coming up, the founder of modern theater, Henrik Ibsen and his great play, A Doll's House. start off today by further peeling back another layer of the hopefully not completely uninteresting onion that is our lives. We've already revealed our America adjacent status, but if we if we delve into family history, to a varying degree, we both have connections to Norway. You're only one step removed, and for me, it's it's the it's the grandfather that I honestly barely remember. So very kindly, you've tried to help me get back to my heritage, so to speak, by teaching me a few useful Norwegian phrases, completely, you know, useful stuff like Yayo Oda Fembila, which I think you told me means I own five cars. And, and I can go to Norway and say, Vind vond Kriegen. And I, I think that means who won the war. And then I can answer it and say, Tuskeland vond Kriegen, that Germany won the war. And I think for whatever reason, you added in senep, which I think, if I remember correctly, is mustard. Now, I apologize for my pronunciation. I know my Norwegian is not as good as my French, but it does all lead back to a desire to have maybe more Norwegian content on here. I pushed for the wisdom of the guy from AHA or the wisdom of the fired Man United manager, Ole Gunnar Skolshar. So I apologize if I butchered that name. But you insisted on some guy who wrote some plays or something. The wisdom of the guy from AHA. That's not a bad idea, actually. Oh, and um, as horrific as that attempt at Norwegian was, it might, though, still be better than your French. Okay, well, let's get this thing going. So first, and as usual, a brief summary. So, A Doll's House is a play written by the Norwegian playwright Henrik Ibsen. It um, premiered in 1879. The play has as its central theme something like the the fate of being a married woman in a male-dominated world. A Doll's House burst upon the contemporary scene like like a bombshell. Well, why? Well, first of all, the language that Ibsen used was was more realistic and, and more natural than it had been prior to this. But more importantly, it was because what Ibsen was doing was unveiling human psychology with all its um, hidden forces in a way that hadn't been done before. 
It was, um, it was essentially a blow to the domestic Victorian morality of that time. I mean, the play suggested that marriage wasn't as sacred or sacrosanct as people had assumed, and that male authority shouldn't go unchallenged. And of course, there's the, um, the final scene, when Nora walks out on her husband and her children in an effort to find herself. Now, this would have been shocking for contemporary audiences, as 19th century women were supposed to stay home and, and contentedly care for their husbands and children. A Doll's House is one of the world's most performed plays, and Ibsen himself, along with the likes of uh, Shakespeare, one of history's greatest playwrights. Okay, for all the ladies out there listening, I know you've been waiting with absolute bated breath for an evil man, you know, redundant, I know, so let's just say man, but a man like myself, one who happens to be so white, that if you were to draw, you know, vertical blue lines on me, I could pass for some sort of lumpy, misshapen sheet of paper, but, you know, it really, all these ladies, these women, females, Listen up. A man is going to talk about feminism. Hold on, please don't turn it off. I really only want to focus on the truly sexy topic of denotation versus connotation. So if we take that as a kind of a start, with all my man bashing in the beginning, I might have already fallen into the trap that I was hoping to expose. So let's forget all of that. It's, you know, very ironic and I don't want to go off some Alanis Morissette tangent. So let's just say feminism. The dictionary definition is the advocacy of women's rights on the basis of equality of the sexes. Hard to argue against that, but we all know some of the, shall we say, connotative qualities of the word. You know, humorless man-haters that long to make testosterone a class one illegal drug, possession of which punishable by death. Is that fair? I don't think so. In this instance, we really might be better off just being fans of dictionary definitions. And then most of us could just say, yeah, I'm a feminist. So if we could bring Ibsen back to life, do you think he'd be willing to say the same? Yeah, so, so this question of, uh, of feminism in Ibsen is a good one. But it's, um, it's tricky, I think. Okay, well, where do I start here? Well, let me start with his view on marriage first. So, I think one of Ibsen's observations concerning marriage, something he condemns, was that marriage had at its basis a financial motivation. In other words, there was a, um, a mercenary motive to it. I mean, there's one point in the play when uh, Nora's friend, Lind, tells Nora that she never really loved her husband, but that the reason she married him was that she had a sick mother to take care of, and, and he was rich. So, she really had no choice. The point is, is that marriage in Ibsen's works is a kind of um, financial bargain, one that turns out uh, bad for women, marital uh, unhappiness being often the result. Actually, you know, this makes me think of the, of the fact that there are a few feminists today that argue that marriage is a kind of, well, a kind of legalized prostitution. They argue that it's, um, it's a legalized prostitution in the sense that it's a, it's a legal transaction which permits access to women's bodies in return for subsistence. Now, I don't think Ibsen goes this far. 
But certainly he, he did seem to think that money in this context was often a problem. Insofar as it um, often demeaned and corrupted relationships within a marriage by setting up a power iniquity at the heart of it. Okay, but according to Ibsen, it's not just money that's a problem for marriage. It's also the, the whole structure and social expectations and sometimes facade of marriage. That is, Ibsen seems to be suggesting that it's just difficult to, to express your, your true nature in a way that's not mediated by the limiting frame of marriage and by the, the societal expectations and, and notions of respectability associated with it. I mean, what happens, for instance, is that often things like um, ready-made roles and social disapproval takes the place of personal conscience and authentic growth. I mean, in a doll's house, Nora is treated like a, like a little girl by her husband. She's treated like a, like a doll or, or a lark in a make-believe world. And she's totally acquiesced to this social role assigned to her by the marriage norms of that time. In effect, um, she lives like uh, Milton's Eve, who's made to proclaim that husband is law and to know nothing more is women's happiest knowledge. Okay, but eventually, of course, Nora wakes up to reality. She realizes the sham their life has been together. She realizes the role she has for so long blindly accepted. And what's even more telling is that when Nora decides to, to leave her husband, he responds by saying that she can't leave because she has duties to him and their children. So, According to him, she's not only a doll, but she's also a mother. Her essence is maternity. Now, the implication is that this is how she must be seen, and how she must see herself. But Nora is done with being put into boxes that serve others and um, perpetuate the stereotypes. Life without individuality is unfulfilling and empty. She, she finally replies that the only duty she has now is to herself, something her, her husband seems astonished by. She, she wants autonomy and time to figure out who she really is. She wants to um, shut the door on the dollhouse and walk out into the unknown. She wants to work out what it means to, to live authentically and to finally express her true nature unmediated by the, by the distortions of society which uh, mostly include the perceptions of men, most importantly, of course, those of her father and her husband. And by, um, by walking out, I think she's saying one more very important thing as well. She's saying that true love between a man and a woman can only begin by, by meeting out in the open, without lies, without perception, free from societal duties. Okay, now, somewhat surprisingly, maybe, apparently Ibsen wasn't, strictly speaking, an adherent of, of women's rights. As he, he said at a conference in Oslo, I have never written any play to further a social purpose. I am not even sure what women's rights really are. Now, that said, he might have upheld this sort of approach because, um, because he was skeptical of institutional solutions to solve problems. And at the end of the day, 
he, he did seem to have a much broader target in mind. Namely, what he was concerned with was the change of individuals from within, so that they can um, genuinely express themselves free from the corrupting influences of society and the sort of artifices like marriage that often belong to this. Or maybe another way of putting all this is that Ibsen was, was interested in human beings first and foremost, and not so much um, social constructs. But that said, and to, to get to your question specifically, I think it's also fair to view um, Ibsen's Dollhouse as a kind of proto-feminist work. I mean, after all, it's a story about the, the flowering of a woman's consciousness. It's a story that dramatizes the, the female protagonist's realization that, that it's possible for her to become someone other than her husband's little woman, or doll, or ornament. And on top of that, no other story sends a, sends a stronger message of the hypocrisy and the stupidity of isolating women from the active life, from the um, outside world of work. I mean, remember that the, the English writer... Ruskin, said that man is the doer and the creator and the discoverer and the defender and that the woman needs to be protected. Well, Nora defies all this. She does this in part when she makes the decision to, to actually operate in the world by taking out a secret loan behind her husband's back and then um, working hard to repay it. And what she says after she does this is, is revealing. She says, it was almost like being a man. You know what? Now that I think about it, a lot of what's being both suggested and said by Ibsen in A Doll's House reminds me of what the um, French feminist and existentialist Simone de Beauvoir talks about, especially in her famous work, The Second Sex. Of course, the, the first thing that comes to mind is her, is her famous quote, you know, um, one is not born but becomes a woman. And obviously by this she meant that social constructions of, of gender characteristics determine our ideas of sex. I mean, de Beauvoir says that from the very beginning, girls are treated in a certain way. They're, they're given dolls and, and so on. And then both society and family teach them that they're, that they're here for marriage and motherhood. But to adopt the, the role of wife, then of, then of mother limits personal freedom, she thinks. It's to have a, a destiny imposed upon oneself from the outside. In other words, women have taken on um, an objectified status that allows little room for, for autonomy. Females are raised, de Beauvoir says, to see love as, as relinquishing everything for the benefit of the man. So men stay sovereign, while women give up their body and soul for men. So, women live in what she calls um, bad faith. They, they turn themselves into, into a thing. That's to say, instead of transcending themselves through, through creativity and work, they capitulate to the often monotonous existences of having children, tending to the domestic, and serving as the sexual receptacle of the male libido. But again, all of this, de Beauvoir thinks, as it did for, for Nora, prevents women from becoming genuine, self-chosen persons. And, by the way, as detrimental as this can be to women, 
let's not forget that it also stunts the potential of men. As in the case of um, Nora's husband, men also impoverish their own lives and opportunities when they subordinate women and so miss out on what women really have to offer relationships. Quite a while ago, I got a call from my dad. He, he really loved cameras. He loved photography. And he thought that there was a camera shop that had something that he wanted. And this particular shop was right near my home. I said to him very confidently, I don't know about that. I hadn't noticed a camera shop. So I Googled it and it was literally a 60 second walk from my back door. Point is, I am, if not stupid, oblivious. I bring it up because after living in my neighborhood for a long time, I discovered, I don't know, about a year and a half ago, that there was a self-realization center really nearby. Now, it's really a yoga, meditation, sitting cross-legged kind of place. And I'm not against any of that, except for maybe the cross-legged sitting. But I came across this place during the height of COVID, or, I don't know, the depths of COVID. If the cross-legged thing already wasn't enough to turn me off, the idea of dying because I needed to go to a place so they could help me realize who I am, I don't know, just didn't appeal to me. Like, imagine I did it, and I died, and I'm down there in Hades, I'm hanging out with Achilles, and he's recounting his epic tale of how he ended up here, and I have to tell him that a guy that was teaching me to be who I really am breathed in my face, and I died. Now, I'm definitely not diminishing the pursuit of self-realization in any way because self-realization is quite clearly a major work in this Ibsen story. Yeah, you know, now that I think about it, I don't think in all of these years I've ever seen you sit cross-legged. I don't think I want to see you try, actually. So anyway, um, let's get to your point about the the importance of uh, self-realization here. So we've seen how Nora wants to seek a kind of uh, self-realization. But, you know, really, that was what Ibsen himself was just all about. I mean, he certainly wasn't about any kind of um, carefree existence. No, he, he wanted to offer the best of himself, to truly manifest himself in the world through his, his work and his plays. He didn't like um, smug, unimaginative people who, who didn't realize life to the fullest. He didn't like the lukewarm. Be passion's slave, he says in one of his plays. And he didn't shy away from suffering. No, no, he welcomed suffering because it's through this that great things can be accomplished. In other words, he believed that the passion and the, the profundity that makes life worth fighting for can only be obtained through, through great sorrow and struggle. And he believed in the price paid for individuality. He accepted the cost for a person to realize their destiny. Actually, you know, in all of this, Ibsen comes close to someone like the the great existentialist philosopher Kierkegaard. I mean, in an almost near echo of Ibsen, Kierkegaard said that his age is contemptible because it's without passion. What's more, This age will die, he says, not as a result of some evil, but from a lack of passion. And again, echoing Ibsen, he says that men's thoughts are are thin, 
and frail as lace. You know, it's, it's interesting. Kierkegaard actually likened himself to, to Socrates. You know, that, um, that Socrates who thought of himself as the, the stinging and irritating gadfly to the, to the slumbering and sleepy horse that was the people of Athens. Um, like Socrates, Kierkegaard wanted to awaken his contemporaries from, from their complacency, from their, their lack of thoughtfulness and lack of intensity. Well, I think Ibsen saw himself doing the very same thing in his plays. Characters like Nora are a testament to that move away from the thoughtlessness and comfort of social approbation towards an awakening individuality and intensity. They are all in their own way, pioneering spirits who who move to surpass the limitations of their own existence. You know, this reminds me of something else that Ibsen reportedly said, and it's apt here. He said, a person is right who has allied themselves most closely with the future. to the wisdom of podcast if you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general visit wisdomofpod.com and as usual we love to read your questions and comments reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on twitter at wisdom underscore pod our next episode plato's were public